Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Well, welcome everyone to Foothills. It's so good to see all of you today. Even though it's uh, poor air quality outside and it's Labor Day weekend, lots of people have fled the valley for their last blast. I just want to say thank you for all of you here on campus and all of you doing church at home, even if church at home right now is in your tent in McCall somewhere. So we are glad you're joining us. This is a final installment on the new normal, and this series is all about change. And we picked this title because... So many people are saying, well, what's the new normal? This is the new normal. That's the new normal. The way you dress, what you eat, where you go, how you work, what your kids do for education, blah, blah, blah. So it's like new normal, new normal. Everybody's telling us about the new normal. I'm like, well, how in the world do you manage the new normal? How do you deal with all of these changes? And the life of Joseph is a perfect place to study because it's all about change. There's so much change in the family and in the life of Joseph. And what we found is that the way you manage this massive change in your life is by turning to God. A principle that's bubbled up in studying this story over and over again is simply this. And the principle is that my attitude towards change is uh, affected by Uh, how change impacts me. So let me rephrase that according to how it's on the screen. My attitude towards change, meaning the way I approach it, is going to have a huge impact on the way it affects me, okay? And so what we see in the life of Joseph is we see that he learned over the course of 20-some years, maybe 22, 24, 25 years, that the more he trusted God, that is how he formed the right attitude in facing all of these changes. Now, if you are just coming into visiting us for the very first time, we're so glad you're here. If you came down today to spend This worship service with us today, we're so glad you're here. And I just want to bring you up to speed real quick on the story of Joseph before we get into chapters 43, 44, and 45. Now, Joseph was one of 12 brothers. He didn't get along with them. They sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. There, he ends up in prison, but he has this skill to interpret dreams that God had given him. It's God's gift to him. When he started off, he was very immature, and he thought, well, this gift is for me, but then he transitions to, I'm just going to trust God regardless of what happens, and he, found, and he became so much more mature. Then Pharaoh has a dream, he interprets the dream, and then Pharaoh elevates him to the most powerful man underneath Pharaoh in all of Egypt. The famine hits, which is one of the dreams he interpreted, and uh, after seven years of plenty. So during seven years of plenty, Joseph gathers all this food, and then the famine hits, and his old family that sold him into slavery gets hungry, comes down to Egypt, and he sees them. So he sends them back, and they don't recognize him, and he says, don't come back unless you bring 
the youngest son, which is Benjamin, his full brother. So we're going to kind of pick up in uh, chapter 43, and we're going to see what happens, okay? So let's kind of jump into this story. The brothers, now, because it's three chapters long, I can't just read it all for you today, so I want to pick out kind of the highlights. I really hope you accepted my challenge to read this story, Genesis 37 through 45, over the last six weeks, because it, you're going to get a lot more out of today's message if you were able to do that. Now, in verse 16, it says, now when Joseph saw Benjamin, so the brothers returned to Egypt because they run out of grain, and they bring Benjamin. And what the brothers say is, we can't go back, Jacob, without Benjamin, or the ruler there is going to call us liars and imprison us. And so Jacob relents and says, okay, they go down to Egypt and show up. Joseph saw Benjamin with him. He said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. Now you and I might think, wow, if I went on a trip to Washington, D.C., and whoever was like, you know, the president or the vice president at that time was walking down the street, recognize me and say, hey, I'm inviting you to dinner at my house. How would you feel? You'd probably be like, yes, the best tour ever. And, but what happens is that's not the way they took it. And here's why. Egyptians detested other ethnic groups and refused to eat with them. Look at what happens in verse 18. The brothers believe they're going to be taken there and made slaves. The invitation is a ruse. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks. And if you remember in the story before, the chapter before, they were sent home full of grain and the money they brought to buy that grain, Joseph gave back to them by putting it into their sacks without their knowledge. And they said, guess what that means now? He wants to attack us, overpower us, and seize us as slaves and take away our donkeys. So you can kind of see they have some fear. But while they're there at this dinner in chapter 43, something else happens. What do you think happens? Well, chapter 43, verses 30 and 31. They are served instead of becoming servants. So this is an entire flipping of what they thought was going to happen. They end up eating a meal. Now they ate separate from the Egyptians and from Joseph, but they were served by the Egyptians. But Joseph, look at what happens to him. He was deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Benjamin. He hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. And after he had washed his face, he came out controlling himself, and he said, serve the food. So the brothers now were served. So if he then eats with them, and he says, I'm going to send you back with all the grain that you want. And so we go to verse or chapter 44, and look at how Joseph decides to send them back. But Joseph does something really odd again. And if you were here last week, we saw Joseph acting kind of weird. And if you're not familiar with the culture or what Joseph's actually looking for, you're going to think this is even weirder than before. Let's see what it is. Verse 1 of chapter 44. 
Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry. So he wants to give them all the grain that they can carry back to their father's household. Then he says this, put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. So give them back not only the money they brought back, but the new money they brought to buy more grain. So bring it all and put it in their sack. And then he does something even stranger. He plants a cup, a very special cup, in order to accuse them of repaying generosity with evil. Verse 2 says of chapter 44, then he tells the steward, put my cup, my personal cup, the silver one, very valuable, in the mouth of Benjamin, the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. So then what happens now, which is really interesting in the following chapters, is that he tells the steward, once they get out of town, I want you to go and I want you to accuse them of stealing my cup and bringing it back, bring them all back. So they all march back. And what's interesting is Judah starts to speak. And the reason why, and this is in chapter 44, before we get into chapter 45. And the reason it's important that Judah speaks the following words is because Judah is the one way back in chapter 37 that said, hey, instead of killing him, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. So Judah is now speaking for the brothers. And what's really interesting is Judah starts to speak what Joseph is looking for. So in verse 16 of chapter 44, let's look at what happens. Is Judah comes back and Judah says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Now what Judah's saying is, God has now revealed that your servants have done. And I think what Judah's referring to is what he ultimately did with his brothers to Joseph 22, 23 years ago. Isn't that interesting? We are now my Lord's slaves. He doesn't use the word servant here. He says, we're slaves now. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. Then he goes into this big uh, uh, discussion with Joseph about the importance of bringing Benjamin back to his father. Because he says, look, you told us not to come back unless we bring the youngest one, right? Well, we brought him, but if we don't return with him, guess what? Our father is going to die from a broken heart. So look at what he says in verse 33. He says, because of all this, we don't want to break my father's heart. Now then, please let your servant, me, remain here as my Lord's slave in the place of the boy. Do you see how he's offering himself up to take the place so that his father wouldn't be brokenhearted? Just think about that for a second. If you were a son of a, uh, and you were to say, if my brother doesn't return, my dad will die of a broken heart. If I return without him, 
It's no big, if I don't return, my dad will still be happier that my brother returned. Think about that. I mean, that's pretty sacrificial in his admittance. And he says, let the boy return with his brothers. So at this point, Joseph just can't contain himself anymore. So in verse uh, one of chapter 45, Joseph just breaks down and he just can't contain himself. He goes, guys, it's me, really, you know? And they don't believe him. But in verse four, look at what Joseph says. He says to his brothers, come close to me, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, listen to this phrase, do not be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So now Joseph is basically saying, I can see even in the midst of all this evil and suffering in my life, God is redeeming it for something I couldn't even imagine. So what happens next after that, of course, is Pharaoh then invites the entire family to move to Egypt. Pharaoh's so happy, he says, when the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all of his officials were pleased. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals, return to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your families back to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. And that is how Pharaoh invites the entire family to live in the land of Goshen. So all of these events ultimately saved Israel and his family. And when they moved to Goshen, they were maybe somewhere between three and 400. And when they leave Goshen to go back to the promised land during the Exodus, there are almost 4 million people. So they expand massively there. Look at verse 19 and 20 of chapter 50. So the brothers after Israel, okay, dies, they're a little nervous. And so Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. I am in the place, am I in the place of God? He's saying, I, I, I don't know why God did or allowed what happened to happen. I can't, I can't see events from the eyes of God. But you intended to harm me. Some translation said, what you intended for evil. So the intent was harm and evil in the life of Joseph. He says, but God intended and we see this spirit of redemption happening. Last week, we talked about God's ultimate will for your life is redemption. He says, he intended it for good. What, what did he redeem the evil for? To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, this story is such a phenomenal story. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks uh, studying all of the implications of this. But what I would like to do is kind of focus in on one specific thing to help you understand the story of redemption that is happening here, okay? And the story of redemption is all about what God is doing in the life of Joseph 
regardless of the evil that people intended to do. And the way you can walk in the redemption of God, regardless of the evil that people intend to do in your own life, or the evil that this world pours out upon you. When we look at all the injustice that's happening, we look at the evil things that people do, we look at things like human trafficking that's going on today, the practice of modern-day slavery in Northern Africa, we look at uh, the violence in the streets, we look at what people do uh, with drugs and, and how they propagate that to take advantage of people in our society and create addicts. We, I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on. It'd take forever to list all the evil that could be poured out and propagated on you. How does God redeem you from all of that and its effect in your life? How does God redeem your own life? Well, the answer to that is, is the key to living a redeemed life is by walking in repentance. Repentance is the key to experiencing the redemptive will of God in your life. Now, I would love to be able to just dig into repentance over and over and how significant it is, but I just want to kind of give you a brief overview real quick, and I would like to whet your appetite for digging into repentance at a deeper level. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to share with you four basic things that we see in the uh, speech that Judah gives to Joseph, because what Joseph was looking for is repentance, and that's what Judah communicated. And I'm going to show you how he did it and how these four things really give us a deeper understanding of what repentance is all about. So the first one is this, and that is repentance begins with your mind, okay? The, the most common theme throughout all the Bible is repentance. In the Old Testament, the law was given to Moses in order to show the Israeli people how to practice repentance. When God sinned, or excuse me, when David, not God, I got to get that straight. When David sinned against God with Bathsheba, how, I mean, he totally blew his life apart. He blew the kingdom apart, blew the government apart. It could have all just fallen apart. How was it restored? Because of repentance. When John the Baptist came, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, he preached and practiced a baptism of repentance. On the day of Pentecost, when the church was started, the apostle Peter stood up and they said, what must we do? What were the first words out of Peter's mouth? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later on, Peter's preaching again. And he says in Acts 3.19, he says, repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out in times of refreshing may come from the Lord. How do you walk in this repentance? Well, how you do it is you have to begin with your mind. What happens is most people never understand repentance because they have a negative mindset about it. 
You see, repentance is designed to refresh you, restore you, renew you, and let you live the redemptive will of God in your life. But if it's not done properly, repentance doesn't work. If repentance creates guilt or shame in your life, if repentance makes you feel worse off than before, then I would ask you to consider that maybe, just maybe, you're not doing it properly. Now, the proper way is to start with your mind. So let's go back to go, uh, repentance uh, begins with your mind. And that is this, is remember what Judah said. He said, the God has uncovered your servant's guilt. What, is, what does he mean by that? Well, what he means by that is this. We're not going to give any more excuses. We're not going to say what we did to Joseph was right because he was a snotty little brat. We're not going to say Joseph deserved his fate because dad played favorites. They didn't say we deserve, you know, we don't deserve this because it's unjust, because we were born and raised in the land of Canaan and the famine came along. They didn't say we're not here because God didn't do his job right. What they said is what we did was wrong, no excuses. And God has uncovered our guilt. Why is that so significant? Well, I'll tell you why. You live in a world that says this, follow your heart. Jiminy Cricket, let your conscience be your guide. It sounds just like that in the Disney movie, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I'm not... Uh, really big into cultural references all the time. Uh, sometimes my kids uh, telling me, you know, dad, you need to get up on your, your uh, uh, modern day pop culture. But I was reading and somebody turned me on to this. I went in and investigated. Remember when I was young, there was the original 90210. You remember that? The little soap opera about kids in high school in Beverly Hills. So how many of you watch that? Oh, some people are like, I'm not, I'm not even going to admit to that in church. Come on. No, I'm teasing. Well, there was one, and uh, uh, Tori Spelling uh, played this character, Donna. She had a boyfriend, and she in, uh, was thinking about sleeping with her boyfriend. You know, she's like, oh, I think we should have sex. Maybe we shouldn't. Da, 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 da. She has a dream about running into a priest. And so she goes down to the church, the priest, and talks to him and says, basically, you know, I'm thinking about sleeping with my, my boyfriend a little bit because, this is, just, you know, this is what I'd like to do and so forth. And this is what the priest says. The priest basically says, well, you just need to follow your heart. And whatever, whatever your heart tells you to do is what's right. And remember, no matter what you do, God loves you. You see, what the world has done is trying to hold to a form of godliness but denies all of its power. It's just destroyed all of its power. And the reason why is, is because we want to look at morality and we want to look at the world around us with our own conscience. And guess what? Repentance in your life will never, ever work until you look at your life the way God does instead of the way you do. The Bible says over and over again, don't follow your heart, calibrate your heart, calibrate your conscience according to the will of God. 
What would have been so much easier or so much better, in my opinion, is if Donna, that story had said to the priest saying, so what you're saying is there's no objective standard of right and wrong so that if I just make it up for myself and do whatever I want, no matter how much I'm exploiting this boy, using this boy, even though I have no intention of ever marrying him or having a long-term relationship with him, and it may just ruin his life and warp his perception of females and teach him to objectify women to get what he wants, as long as I feel good about it, I can do that. And God's going to love me no matter what. Well, see, what what they're misunderstanding is they're taking a very, very broad and critical axiom. Okay, an axiom means a truth that never changes no matter what. God is love and God loves you. That's true. But what does God's love mean? Is God's love mean that he's just up there to affirm every choice your self-centered, narcissistic heart makes? So you feel good about it? She, Donna's going to grow up. She goes off to college, and then she gets a job, and she's a lawyer, and she comes and she sees a pastor who knows what the Bible actually says, and then she sits there and says, where have all the good men gone? Why are men so selfish and narcissistic, and they won't commit, and they won't, they won't uh, work on a real relationship with me? And that pastor might say, well, maybe because they're just like you. They're just like you. They want to follow their heart. And no matter what, God loves them, right? So you're just going to have to love them even though they're that way. I could go down this road and show you the overwhelming insidiousness and destructive thing that that principle, I call it a postulate of truth, does to people, especially young people and their lives. And so repentance is never happening in their lives and their hearts, and they are cheated out of walking in the redemptive, actual love of God. The most important thing that you will ever do is you will calibrate your conscience, is you will admit that God's perspective of my life is so much more important than my own perspective. What God sees and what God thinks is more important than even what I think about myself. Because God is truth, unfettered. He's truth. And when I am in that truth, I will not only discover who God is, but I will discover who I actually am. Now, the Bible says that the first step in repentance is cognitive. It starts with your brain. This is why in Romans 12, Paul wrote the words, Be transformed by the way you feel about things in life. Is that what he said? If you memorize that verse, it says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, that's the first step. Now, I wish I could dig into it more, but I don't have time. Let's go to the next one, and that is the repentance requires an act of will. So it starts in your mind, and then your will has to be engaged. And this is in verse 33 of chapter 44 when Judah says, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. So what he's doing is he's making a choice to take responsibility for what happened. I'm the one who said, sell him into slavery. So take me instead. I am, I am responsible. Now, this is something that's really, really interesting about freedom from your past, okay? I want you to understand how taking responsibility and not blaming anybody else is one of the most important 
steps in repentance that brings you the greatest amount of freedom. And that is until you can take it all on, you can't let go of it all. Whatever you're unwilling to take on, you're incapable of letting go. Somebody illustrated it this way once, an old pastor. He said, look, if you have a big log and you want to throw the log, if you pick up one end of the log, what happens? And you throw it. Well, the log just kind of stays there, right? If you want to throw the whole log away, what have you got to do? You've got to pick up the whole thing before you can throw it. And that's the point, is that when you take responsibility for something, it's the most hopeful thing you can do because it always allows you to let it all go. Well, I'd love to dig into that one, but I don't have time. (laughs) Number three, true repentance requires mourning. It requires a melting of your heart. You know, it's really interesting. Notice how we start with the mind, then we go to the will, and now we're talking about your emotions that need to be, that, that need to be melted away. When, when you want to refine gold, you can't pound the imperfections out. What do you have to do to gold to refine it? You have to melt it. All precious metals are that way. You know, the, the most successful uh, program for getting people free from addiction is a 12-step program. It's the most successful program in human history. And there's 12 separate steps. And I think one of the reasons why it's so accessible is because around, you know, it depends on which one you do, but seven, eight, and nine, they have a step called making amends. And what making amends is, is that you have to go and you have to seek, as long as it's not uh, hurtful, you have to seek uh, a restoration with what your addiction did to the lives of all the people around you. And the purpose of this step, in my opinion, is it melts your heart. It just melts you. Because you're just like, wow, I want to, my heart must be melted so it can feel again. My heart must be melted so it can be reborn again. My heart must be melted so that I can experience the redemptive act of God in my life. A brittle heart, a hard heart only cracks and breaks, but a softened heart, God does not despise because that's contriteness. And God can reignite a melted heart. Now, finally, the thing I want to share with you is this, and that is, is that repentance always needs love. Now, remember what Judah basically said? He said, I can't stand to see my father's heart broken, so take me instead. Did he think about how his father loved him less than Benjamin? Did he think about that? No. He thought about how his father's heart would be broken, and his love for his father allowed him to surrender himself to slavery. And that is how repentance restores and renews. You see, when you walk the process of repentance, it starts in your mind, you make a decision, then you have a melting of your heart, then you say, I am now going to do something new in love. When you respond to God out of fear, that's just compliance. That's not love. When you respond to God out of this notion, it's like, okay, 
oh man, God, I, I, I better not do this thing wrong because God will be mad and then bad things are going to happen in my life. Oh, maybe I did something wrong or I sinned against God and I better get right with God. Boy, I better, I'm going to go to church now, God, for six weeks straight without missing. I'm going to make sure I start tithing. I don't know if you saw this movie a long time ago, but it was a movie with Burt Reynolds in it. And uh, you're probably, most of you are going, you lost me right there, Pastor. <laughs> Who is Burt Reynolds? Well, it was called The End, and it was about this guy who'd lost his reason for living again. He thought, he kept trying to kill himself, and at the end, he swims way out into the ocean. Two miles out there in the middle of the ocean, he's going to drown, and then he remembers his daughter, and he remembers this, and he remembers this, and he comes up out of the water, and he suddenly has a reason to live, so he's trying to swim back, right? And so he's swimming back, and he goes, God, I'm going to serve you 100% of the time. I'm going to tithe 100% of my income to you. God, I'm going to go to church to every week, and he gets halfway back to the beach, and you know what he says? God, I'm going to serve you 50% of the time, and I'm going to serve, I'm going to go to church half of the time, and I'm going to give you half of my income, and then as he slowly gets closer to the shore, by the time he gets to the beach, he says, you know, God, let's just forget about all that stuff. I'm good now. And in the movie, it's funny, but I'm like, I, it's, it's amazing. That's a relationship with God when you, when you try to respond to him out of fear of punishment. The apostle John says there is no fear in love because fear involves what? Punishment, but perfect love casts out all fear. And that's why repentance always works when done properly, because it's done out of love. It's done out of love. When you respond to God's love, when you respond to his grace, when you say to yourself, being away from God is so painful for me now, I must be right with him because I love him. That's when transformation in your life really happens. I'm going to say something now that it's really tough to hear, but I would like you to just think about it for a second. And that is, is there a block in your, your faith? Is there a sin in your life that you just repeat over and over again? Is there an addiction you'd like to break? Well, you can try to break it with an act of will. You can try to break it by reading books about it. You can try to have accountability partners to help. But until you realize and come to the truth that you love that thing more than you love God, you'll never break its power over you. The only thing that can destroy the power of the worldly things that entrap us is the love of God. Never forget that. So I hope I whetted your appetite about repentance. And what I'd like to do now is just plead with you. I'm not too proud. I just want to beg you. I will beg you to find Jesus. I beg you to turn to him because he will be your salvation in the midst of a world turned upside down. I beg you to give your whole life and your whole heart to him. I beg you to give yourself and all of your love to him because there is no other way that you will ever find true freedom in this life, in this world. It only comes from Christ and Christ alone. Now let's find out how you can take the next step. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.